So we'll talk about pride, power, and position. It's in your bulletin. Why don't you stand up and we will read this short little passage and take a little journey through it. This is Matthew chapter 20, the word of the Lord. Jesus is speaking, or sorry, Matthew is speaking and then Jesus will be. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, this is James and John, by the way, they were in Jesus' inner circle. James, John, and Peter were a part of that inner circle. So the mother of the sons of Zebedee, James and John, came up to Jesus with her sons and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, Say or give me your word that these two sons of mine, James and John, will sit, one at your right and one at your left, in your kingdom. A quick little uh, street version translation here. I don't know if James and John at this point were like, Mom, don't say this. These are grown men at this point. They're disciples of Jesus. This is in the third year of his ministry, right before he goes to Jerusalem to be crucified. I don't get the sense that's it, though. I think James and John's mom was doing their bidding. They all had this idea, Jesus, will you save me a seat when you're enthroned as king? In your moment in the spotlight, in the glory, will you save me the seats next to you? Jesus answered, Mama, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I will have to drink? They said to him, we're able. I think they thought Jesus was saying, hey, well, are you up for it? Are you up for the task? They say, yeah, we're able. Jesus said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left hand is not mine to grant, for it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. We know after the fact he's talking about the two criminals to his left and his right when he was enthroned as king on the cross. And when the ten other disciples heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers, the word there, annoyed or pissed off. 25, But Jesus called them and said to the group, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles, or the pagans, or the godless, however you want to call them, uh, the Gentiles lord their power over their subjects, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it will not be so among you, my disciples, in my kingdom and my church. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So let's pray. Jesus, in um, spending time with this passage, I'm reminded of all the other good, magnificent, beautiful things that you've made and given to us that we have warped and abused and misused. Power is one of those things, Jesus. We confess to you, we are people with power problems, position problems, self-promotion problems. And proud people have hard hearts. So we pray that tonight the first thing you would do is what Brittany said earlier. Would you give us soft hearts and open ears to be able to hear you speak to us? We need that from you. And so we call upon you who is able and willing to do it to do that for us. Humble us. Show us what true power is and how beautiful it is. And let us be encouraged by how you've used your power for us. We ask this in your name. Amen. You can take a seat. Thanks. 
So did you know that uh, 2015, in the year 2015, more people died from taking selfies around the world than from shark attacks? It's an interesting statistic, uh, interesting and phenomenal enough that Rolling Stone did a feature story on it a couple of years ago called Death by Selfie. And they wrote this in the beginning of the article. This month, a grown man fell to his death while posing for a picture on a ledge at Machu Picchu, the ancient Incan citadel in Peru. But death by selfie at a temple built for human sacrifice begs the question, how far would you go to get yourself in that killer shot? From falling down the steps of the Taj Mahal to being gored alive by wild animals, here are the 11 most disturbing stories of selfies gone disastrously wrong. And I won't read all 11, but here's a few of them. One man was killed when, on top of a mountain, he wanted a selfie with the lightning storm right behind him and held out his metal selfie stick. The picture was captured and then he died when lightning struck his lightning rod. There was a Chinese man who snuck into the walrus enclosement in a zoo in China, a one and a half ton bull walrus who he was pretending to hug in a selfie and the walrus received the hug and took him to the bottom of the water until he drowned. There was a guy in Pamplona, Spain who was trying to get a selfie as the bulls were coming at him from the back and was gored to death by one of the bulls that reached him sooner than he thought. And there was the two Russian soldiers taking a selfie with a live grenade and you know what happened if they made the list. Yes. And so uh, the other 11 were pretty crazy as well. You'll have to look this up. Just not right now as you reach for your phones. Look, what's new about... What's, there's nothing new about people taking pictures of exotic places or um, really important activities or, or, or things that they're doing. That's not new at all. And I give you all a hard time about millennials and their selfies, whatever. Uh, there's totally awesome, great, fun, legit reasons um, to want a picture of yourself in front of these things. But here's the new thing over the past few years, this phenomenon that's now propelled death by selfie to hire then globally over a whole year period, the deaths by shark attacks in the ocean. What's new is the crazy lengths that people will go to to get themselves in the picture, to get themselves in the frame. That's the dangerous part, right? I mean, people have always gone to Machu Picchu and stood on dangerous ledges or whatever and taken pictures. But when you're trying to angle yourself out over a cliff to get your face in the shot, or when you're running with the bulls and you stop to get your face in the picture with the bulls in the back of the walrus or the lightning or whatever, that's the dangerous part and that's the deadly part. And that's the newer part of this phenomenon. i got to get myself in the frame. Now, why do we do this? I'll speak for myself because I'm not going to pretend to be a sociologist and read all of your minds why you do it. But speaking for myself, the reason the selfie is a thing now is we have platforms and power to project an image of ourselves to the world like never before. And so the kind of story that you tell about yourself is more important than ever. Like when I was in college and I was growing up, which was a long, long time ago, as y'all have never ceased to remind me of, we didn't have, there you go, Bruno, we didn't have anyways, the, the people you told your story to were your best friends. 
Or like a room like this when you went to some ministry or some other club or whatever and you just did it by, hey, get to know you, whatever else. But now you have the option to propel an image of yourself to everybody and everybody's watching. So every Instagram post you put up, every Snapchat you send out, every post on Facebook, whatever you use, you know how many eyeballs are going to be looking at that. And because of how you look at other people's posts, you know what they'll be doing to your post, right? Judging it. Maybe not maliciously, maybe not saying, oh man, that's, that's a stupid post. But counting how many friends are in the room with you, or if it's a picture of a group or a ministry, something else, how, seeing how many people are there, or seeing how much fun you had, or looking at the timestamp of it. Did you have plans on Friday night, or were you all alone Friday night with nothing to do? The way you tell your story is all the more important now because everybody's watching, and we have the ability to project that image of ourselves out there like never before. Thus, the bar is always getting higher for the more exotic, compelling, awesome, glorious story. Now, here's the, here's the deal with me. We'll get back to why I do it. It's to, it's to get the, the glory of the event or the mountain or the lightning strike, whatever. It's to let that glory of the cool factor rub off on me. Or for me to be associated with the cool people in the picture or the cool event or the concert or whatever else. But that's, that's what, I, if you go deep, deep down, and again, don't hear me being the curmudgeon saying all selfies are bad. There's great reasons to do it. I'm just saying if you explored all of your heart, you would find in your heart a thing called self-promotion, a thing called pride that would also motivate us for why we do what we do. And I think is the reason behind this new phenomenon of death by selfie. Because it's so important how we're seen and how we project our image out there. And we want the glory or the coolness or the awesomeness of the event to be, become associated with us. There's a guy uh, that I listen to from time to time, Liam Gallagher. He's a pastor where I um, lived before here in Philadelphia. And he says, uh, he says, remarkably, it's a simple comment. It's not very surprising, but it, I think it's profound. He says, surprisingly, there's a heck of a lot of self still in me. There's a whole lot of Ben still in Ben. There's a whole lot of you still in you. We're people who are filled with self, obsessed with self. We think about self. We dream about self. We take pictures of ourself. We project ourself. We manage an image of ourself. We defend ourself. There's a whole lot of self still left in us. And this is, the, this is, this is like Augustine, the early church fathers said, pride was the sin. It said like things like sexual immorality or whatever, they get more of our attention because it seems like it's just higher volume. But pride, C.S. Lewis, Augustine, all of them across the board would say it's the thing that wreaks the most havoc in our lives and in our relationships and with God. It's the thing. God doesn't say like, he doesn't say like, I, he doesn't make a comment like, I resist, I give grace to the humble, but I resist the sexually immoral or the liar or the cheater. He says, I resist the proud. I resist the proud. And it doesn't help that our entire culture is built on this celebrity idea of people who have the goods and flaunt it and parade it and get celebrated for it. You've spent your whole life in that. So have I. So have even our parents. It's been around a long time now. The celebrity culture where everything around us, it's projecting an image 
And at root of it, I think there's self-promotion behind it. There's me promoting myself. There's me seeking my own advancement or me climbing the ladder or me being seen uh, a certain way. And that's what we mean by self-promotion. Now, self-promotion, if this is true, that that's a, that's a root thing in all of our hearts, and I'm, I'm specifically talking to Christians in the room because Jesus is talking to his disciples, Christians, with the exception of Judas uh, and, and the ten who were pissed off at the other two. He's talking to us, he's saying there's still a lot of self even in us. We have died with Jesus, We've been, we're new creatures, we're alive in Him. Paul says, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. But even still, there's a heck of a lot of you that lives in you and is hungry to come out and be seen in a certain way to promote ourselves. And I think that's what's at the root of verse 20, 21, 22, when, when James, John, and their mom come to Jesus. That's what they're after. They're, they're talking about things they don't know. They don't understand the full profundity of what they're talking about. But they go to Jesus in, a, in a, ostensibly a very sincere, genuine way. I don't think they're joking. They go to him and they say, Hey, Jesus, um, can we sit at the head table? Can we sit at the seat of honor? Will you save us a seat? You know that experience totally, right? Like when you go to B-dubs or Denny's or anybody else, like some party or something, and there's going to be a meal there, you're like, hey, save me a seat, I want to sit next to you. Why do we do that? Because we hate it when you walk into B-dubs or Denny's or wherever you go, and there's only one seat left, and it's on the opposite end of the table that you wanted to be on. And it's not by the people that you wanted to be with. We wanted to be with the people whose glory would rub off on us, Right? Of course we want to be with our friends, but we want to be with the cool people, the beautiful people, the witty people, the funny people, the interesting people. And so all of us, when we walk into the room, there's that, that split-second feeling of, oh, crap. Okay, I guess I'll sit down there, right? Right? James and John are doing that, too. They're like, Jesus, we want to sit by you. So they come to him in secret, and they try to arrange the seating pattern. Now, why are the other disciples angry? Why does it say they're indignant or they're pissed off or they're annoyed at James and John for doing this? Is it because they're so pure-hearted, so humble, so righteous that like, how dare you try to steal Jesus' glory? How dare you try to use him to promote your image and to look better? That's not their motive. The reason why is because Jesus says enough with this little cat fight amongst my 12 disciples and he pulls them aside and and corrects them. But the reason they say that is the reason why you get angry when you're on a long road trip and your buddy, you, you have like a little rest stop, you come back to the car and your buddy says, shotgun. You're angry because you wanted shotgun, not because some like righteous, pure hearted reason. Or if you've ever wanted to ask that girl or that guy out and your friend beats you to it or some formal or some dance and you're pissed at them because you wanted to ask them. They beat you to the punch. That's why the disciples, um, that's why the disciples, the other ten, were so thrown off by this. They wanted the same glory. They, their hearts were just as full of self as James and John's. Their hearts were just as full of self as ours. They're self-promoters. I'm a self-promoter. You're a self-promoter. We could say everyone who's ever lived, with the exception of Jesus, is a self-promoter. Right? This passage clearly shows that. I hope it's a little bit comforting. You see the inner circle of Jesus 
the apostles, the disciples of Jesus. And this is the kind of stuff going down. They're getting in bickering matches because, oh, can you believe that he went and asked them that? How selfish, how whatever. They're just angry because they didn't get the glory in that moment. Pride means that we're self-promoters. And because all of us are self-promoters, it pits us against each other. Which means one of the fundamental problems of human relationships is we're competitive with each other. We are in competition. And it's hard to be, it's hard to have a healthy, steady, good relationship with someone when you're in competition with them. C.S. Lewis says this, and he has a whole chapter in Mere Christianity on pride. He says, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next guy. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer, cleverer, or better-looking than others. If everyone else became rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. Pride in its essence is competitive, is cutthroat. There is only room for one big person. Everybody else has to be small. This is why the first knee-jerk reaction in verse 24 is anger, is indignation, feeling like you've been wronged because James, John, and their mom beat them to the punch. There's this competitive spirit amongst them. How do you know if this kind of stuff is going on in your heart? Well, if you have a pulse, it's going on in your heart. But let's get a little bit more specific. What would some of the symptoms be? I wrote a few down. I think they're the most they're the ones that are the most evident in the passage. Number one, an attitude of self-promotion. Using even Jesus' grace, even Jesus' work in your life, using even Jesus' acceptance of you as a tool to advance yourself before the eyes of others. So look, so saying like, man, I really am wiser than these other people. Like, I really am more mature. That's awesome. Jesus, thank you for the, the great work you've done in my life. An attitude of entitlement. James and John have a sense of entitlement. We deserve, we should get to sit by Jesus. So it's there for the asking. You ever seen the State of the Union? Uh, once a year, the president does it in January. He's standing there speaking, and right behind him is the Speaker of the House and the Vice President. And the camera's fixed on the president for an hour and a half, and guess who else is in view for the entire country to see the whole time? The Vice President, the Speaker. James and John want those seats. They want to get on camera. They want the glory, not your Libras in my head. They want a taste of the glory. <laughs> I watched it the other day. Sorry, Daniel, this is on you. <laughs> they wanted a taste of the glory. An attitude of entitlement. Do you have an attitude of entitlement with God exalting you, honoring you, putting you in places of authority or power or position? Do you have an attitude of, I just don't understand why I can't do this or don't get that or why he gives this to this person but not me? I deserve it. That's a mark that our hearts are infected by this hellish pride. An attitude of competition. We've already talked about this. You're jockeying for power, for prestige, for place, for position. It means you have to be the best friend. You can't be one of the best friends. You've got to listen for that little subtle thing the friend says every now and then that lets you know that you're the prized one. You're the favorite. 
or you listened to that from your parents or your professors, or you got to know that you got the best grade in the class, or you got to know that you're the one who's dating the wisest in RUF more than the other people. You're the one who's figured it out. An attitude of manipulation. This is down in the, the second part of the passage. Jesus says, he calls his disciples, he says, hey, knock it off. And he says, don't you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, so the godless, those who are part of the, just totally all in with the kingdoms of the world, they have nothing to do with God. He says, those leaders lord their power over other people. They manipulate. You don't need me to explain this. This is Congress. When the Republicans get in power, who do they shut up? The Democrats. When the Democrats get in power, who do they shut up? When you promote someone to be a journal, like a news anchor, they'll twist things whatever the way they want for their own bias or their own purposes. We, when we have power, and it's not driven by this godly motive, we manipulate with it. When we have prestige, when we have place or positions, we use it to get what we want. And an attitude of disillusionment with Jesus is another big symptom of this. Making a name for yourself is what's sexy and thrilling and electric. Jesus is a tag-on or an afterthought. What really grabs your imagination, it's in high-definition, vivid color, is hearing someone say something awesome about you or getting a little shout-out, like in a meeting or something. Man, did you all see what so-and-so did the other day? It was awesome. That is what thrills you. And you, it, it just sets wind in your sails for like a week or two. But Jesus never does that for you. The gospel, his grace, his mercy, his everyday mercies just don't really move the needle very much. These are hearts that are attached and addicted and drunk on power and place and prestige and self-promotion that still do all the Jesus talk and all the church talk. That's the attitude of a self-promoting heart that's filled with pride. That's the symptoms of a, of a person that's still filled with a lot of self. And that's how we use power. Now, really quickly, what's this deal about power? Because I mentioned this before we started talking. Some of you feel like you're not powerful people. But here's the thing. All of us have power. Everybody in the room has power. You're a powerful person. The question isn't if, it's where, over who, and how are you using your power. Here's some examples of where you have power that you might not think you do. If you have like a little pocket of friends, let's say you got like a four or five person like friend group, you're squamly to quote Brittany. Yeah, so you got your little squad or whatever, your little friend group, Bruno, that's for you. And, uh, and you're the oldest person in this group. Maybe by a month, maybe by a year, maybe you're one year ahead in school. You have power because you have influence over them. They look up to you. You have leverage in some ways. If you're physically stronger than other people, you have power over the weaker ones. If you're smarter, you have power over those in your class or your project group who don't understand as much. If you're a tutor, you have power over those people coming to you to learn. If you're funnier or more magnetic or cooler or better looking or spiritually mature, more experienced at something, you have power over the less cool, the less familiar, the less funny, the less wise. 
If you are a small group leader on worship team, on ministry team, you have power over other people. If you're the first to move into your apartment at the beginning of the semester, you have power. You get to pick which side of the room or which room or where you want the couches. If you're a husband, you have power over your family. If you're a mom, you have power over your kids. If you're a senator in ASNMSU, if you're an office holder in your sorority, if you're a shift manager at your job, you have power over people. You have position. If you're a boss, a supervisor, if you feel more familiar and at home in RUF, you have power over people who don't feel as familiar and feel a little bit more awkward or on edge here. If you've ever held a microphone, you have power. I could go on and on. I'm just trying to prove the point that you have power. The question is, over whom and how are you using it? That's the question Jesus wants to know. This isn't a question of whether you're a powerful person. It's a question of where is your power that God has given you? Where are the positions that you hold or the places you have of authority over others? And how are you using that power? Are you using it like what he says, the godless Gentiles, the godless pagans who manipulate and coerce and seek self-advancement. They use their leverage, their resources to better themselves at the expense of others. Even if it looks awesome, even if it's pursuing philanthropy and community service and nonprofit stuff, it's to make yourself feel better. It's to get a leg up on a resume. It's because of the warm feeling you feel when you go and do that work. It's not for the inherent love of neighbor itself. Do we use our power that way? Do we abuse our power that way? Well, it's beating a dead horse at this point to say that we have power and we misuse the power that we have. Either I named the situation that's true for you or I didn't name it and hopefully you're thinking about it now. The place you have power, your little siblings, whatever it is, We've just spent a month watching what the godless have done with their power and their authority and their position. You've been here in the news, right? Harvey Weinstein. It's up to 70 women, dozens of whom say he raped them. He was the king of Hollywood. If you wanted your movie made, you had to go through him. And if you were a woman and wanted your movie made... You had to go through him. Kevin Spacey, just the other day, using power 20 years ago over a 14-year-old boy. Journalists who are respected and regarded, who it turns out 20 years ago at ABC News, they were the top guy in the totem pole, and all the other women under them, all the interns under them, experienced unbelievable things these men did, using their power against them. Our president... The way he's used power and celebrity in the past to leverage that for his own advantage. We've seen this all around us in crazy ways, and I get it, there is a different degree of severity there, but we're infected with the same strain of virus. That is what godless power, apart from the gospel, will do to you. Because, here's the thing, 
You have power. Why? What is power? Power is the, the energy to accomplish your purposes. There's a helpful definition of, of power. Power is just the energy it takes to get done what you want done. So if you have righteous, godly, gospel purposes, guess what you use your power to accomplish? Godly, righteous, pure, loving goals. That's what Jesus does. If we are corrupt, and we have corrupt agendas and selfish agendas, self-promoting, self-advancing, self-seeking agendas, what do we use our power to accomplish? My agenda. My goal. My dream. Power is just a means to an end. That's why Jesus pulls his disciples aside and has the conversation he has. Instead of just overlooking it and saying, oh. They fundamentally misunderstand what power is for. The same way we all fundamentally misunderstand what intimacy is for, or sex is for, or food is for, or relationships are for. We warp power in the same way we warp all of those other beautiful, amazing things. And we use it for our own purposes. And great damage is done. I know some of you are the recipients of victimization, the recipients of abuse. You were the one who was the victim of someone else's abuse of power, either verbally or physically or sexually. And you know that never goes away. So this isn't just like a spiritual thing of like, let's go talk about it in a coffee shop tomorrow. This is the stuff that affects all of our lives forever. And Jesus says to his church, it will not be this way with you. So the question is, if this is true, if you're buying what I'm throwing out, that this, we're self-promoters, we're proud people, we're competitive people, we're cutthroat people, even if we're polite and nice about it and hide it under church talk. If that's true about us, then how do you start using power in the way that Jesus tells us to use power? Because Jesus says, you want to be great? You want to be successful? Become a slave of the person sitting to your left and your right. Serve your brothers and your sisters in this room. Serve them. You want to be great? Go to the back of the line and serve. Help. That's how he says that. Let me explain a little bit more and we'll talk about how this can happen and be done. He says, if you want to be great, whoever would be first among you, verse 27, you must be, or they must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The question is, how will you use your position and the power that God has given you for the sake of other people? It's not enough to just say, wow, thank you, Jesus, for this passage because, I mean, man, that was convicting. I probably used power in some bad ways and I need to, like, you know, start treating my little brother better and, like, you know, actually hang out and get to know my coworkers that, that are under me. That's, that's one thing. The problem is you can't get there. How do you change your heart? How do you change what you love? How do you change what you're fundamentally about and what you're chasing if we're these proud people? Well, this is what Jesus says in verse 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And he talks about it earlier when he says, Do you know what cup I have to drink? Here's the thing, and if you hear nothing else tonight, would you please remember this sentence? You're not supposed to just follow Jesus' example 
of how he uses his power. That's a bad thing to take away if it's all you take away tonight because you can't do it. Jesus is saying something far more than this. There's a difference in Jesus and us and he used his power and his position and his authority to save you from yourself. To fundamentally rewire our self-promoting, proud, power-hungry, oppressive hearts. That's what Jesus used his power to do. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve you. And to give his life as a ransom for you, which means, if you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, this is the crazy stuff this means. God, when he came, wasn't like the Greek gods, wasn't like the Babylonian gods, or the Egyptian gods, who are always, you see people fanning them and serving them and doing their bidding. When God, when the true and living God came to earth, we start getting our stuff together to come over and serve him. He says, no, no, no. I came to serve you. What does it mean that he came to serve you? He came to liberate you, to free you. If you're not a Christian, this means that tonight you can walk away free. You walked into this room a slave to yourself, unable to be available for other people because you're already preoccupied with you. Because of what Jesus came to do, to ransom you, which means buy you away from that, buy you back, you can walk away available to love your friends and to love God for the first time ever. That's what it means to be a slave to your neighbor instead of a slave to yourself. If you're a Christian, this is a reminder of who you are. You are not a slave to you anymore. You are available to get to know the people in this room. And you're responsible to get to know the people in this room. You're responsible and you're able to pursue people and to use your power and your position, wherever it is, whatever, whoever it's with, to seek others' prosperity and their thriving and their growth. That's what the effect the gospel has on you. You're free, not just from your guilt and your sin, but you're free from slavery to yourself. So you can actually respond to Jesus when he says, don't jockey for power. Use the power and the position that I've given you to accomplish my goals and purposes which is love and service of neighbor, love and worship of God. Jesus uses his power to free us and to subdue us. Christianity is about liberation, but it's also about slavery. Becoming a slave to Christ and a slave to the people in the room. Doing their bidding, their service. That's what the gospel means. Here's what it looks like in practice, and I end with this story. I was at Village Inn three or four years ago up on Loman, and I used to go out on Monday nights till like three in the morning to work on my sermons, and um, so I was there really late at night, and this couple comes in, and they're old, and I was trying to mind my own business, finishing my work, and I hear like moaning coming from their table, like groaning and stuff, and so I'm like looking over the corner of my eye, trying not to let them see me looking at them. And um, it was a, an older woman, probably in her like 60s or so, and then an older guy about the same age. I think they were married. 
Um, and he was groaning because he had like Lou Gehrig's disease or cerebral palsy or something like that. But his, he had two crutches, he couldn't walk very well, and he, he had to be fed. And he couldn't talk. So the way he talked was, or something like that. He just, he would groan, he would moan. And I, I could tell as time went by that they were married. They were actually, I don't make this up for the effect, but they were like watching some sermon together on YouTube. And, uh, and when he had to get up, he started groaning and pointing to the bathroom. And so the wife gets up, she leaves her dinner there, it's getting cold, and she comes over. And this is, this is not, you know, a strong woman, um, but she gets under him and she lifts up his arms and she puts the crutches under each arm. And she walks him to the bathroom very slowly. And about 10 minutes later, they come back and she sits down again and she starts eating her cold dinner. And he's already fed because she fed him first. Do you know why God gave you power? Do you know why he gave you positions of authority over other people? To do that. Not to compete with them, not to jockey against them, not to promote yourself at their expense, not to be in a cutthroat, cutthroat rat race. He gave you power to serve because he is a God who uses power to serve and to love and to help and to care for. If you're alive in Jesus, your destiny is that woman and better than her because I bet she gets grumbly and tired and complaining. She's been doing that for 40 years. But your destiny is Jesus himself who serves and uses power and position in this way that brings his kingdom, which brings the world back to life. That's your destiny. And if you, you are not alive in Jesus and you're curious about what God is like, when you see Jesus on the cross drinking the cup of wrath of his Father in your place, that's your answer of what God is like. He uses his power for the sake of his people, the weak ones, the proud ones, the oppressive ones. He was on that cross freeing you, not just from sin, but from you and from me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that we have a God who wasn't like the horrible gods of the Greek pantheon or the terrible gods of the Egyptians or the Babylonians or the gods that are fabricated today that shout orders from heaven. We thank you that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life and his power away to ransom us to you. I pray that even tonight and in the days to come, you would use your power in us, the weak ones, the abusers and misusers and self-promoters, and purify us. And let your kingdom even come as you redeem this community of RUF, this campus, this town, and your church. We ask this in your name. Amen.